before I get too deep into the message today, I want to recap for you the first six chapters of Hebrews. We need to recap the first six chapters of Hebrews. Here's why. I talk all the time about reading Scripture in context. And what happens when we don't read Scripture in context is that we miss the forest for the individual trees. Sometimes we get so caught up in paying attention to one little verse or one little word, which is good, by the way, to do that, but we get so caught up, we miss the overarching theme. Now, in Hebrews chapter 6, the verses I'll be going over today is the first part of the transition into the next section of the book. And when I say the next section of the book, I'm saying forget the verse markings, forget the chapter markings. Those weren't in the original text. This is the... Yes, for those of you who don't know that, the chapter markings and the verse markings we added in to be able to help us to figure out when we're at church... hey, turn here so everybody can go to the same place. Those weren't there in the original text. Okay? So this is, as we read it literary, the literary transition, there's a major transition that's happening in this section. So we're going to back up and look at the overall theme real quick of Hebrews chapter 1 through 6. Now, if you remember this, the main example that the author of Hebrews is using is the story of Israel rejecting God that's told in Numbers 13 through 15. Numbers chapter 13 through 15. That's his main example. Now, some people say the author, the book of Hebrews is to, is written to Jews. No, it's not. It's written about Jewish history. It's written to Christians. It's written to Christians to encourage them. It's about Jewish history, real facts about Jewish history, but it's not written to the Jews. And everybody goes, why is it named Hebrews? Because it's about the Hebrew people. Amen? I just challenge you anywhere to find in there where it says that it's for the Jews. Okay? Now, it's for all people, you understand, but it's not specifically targeting the Jewish people. So, but these Jews in the main story of the people of Israel rejecting God in Numbers chapter 13 through 15. And so I want to recap that story, chapter 13 through 15, because that's what he's covering. So here you've got the nation of Israel. They've been in bondage in Egypt, right? And Moses has come and he has he's been used mightily of God to deliver the nation of Israel, from Egypt. And so now they have crossed the wilderness and Moses has taken some men that God has pointed out and he has sent them as spies over into the promised land to check it out. To see, are we ready to take it? Now, keep in mind, because the author of Hebrews in the first six chapters talks about how they saw God's wonders and yet they hardened their heart. Okay, So keep in mind the things that they saw. They saw ten plagues. They saw boils and frogs and all of these things. They saw God's mighty hand repeatedly over and over and over again. They saw Mount Sinai surrounded by a cloud and heard rumblings coming down from the top. And they saw Moses come down face shining. 
They saw the plague of the firstborn. They saw the Red Sea divide. And they cross it as though on dry land. Now, look, I don't know about you, but if I go out and I drain the lake, it is not dry land. You can't cross that easy. Right? But what is this about? They're seeing all of this stuff. But then they send the spies over in and they go across in the promise and they come back and they're like, oh, you guys, this, this promised land, top notch. But, but, there are some really big tough people there and there's no way we can take it. Let me read to you a little bit of scripture from Numbers. At the end of the 40 days, they returned from spying out the land, and they came to Moses and Aaron and to all the congregations of the people of Israel in the wilderness of Paran and Kadesh. And they brought back word to them and all the congregation and showed them the fruit of the land. And they told them, We came to the land which you sent us. It flows with milk and honey, and this is its fruit. However, the people who dwell in the land are strong, and the cities are fortified and very large. And besides, we saw the descendants of Anak there, and the Amalekites dwell in the land of Negeb, and the Hittites and the Jebusites, and the Amorites dwell in the hill country, and the Canaanites dwell by the sea and all along the Jordan. But Caleb, whose name, by the way, in Hebrew means faithful or dog, either one. If you're a Caleb, your name means dog. But it also means faithful. Quieted the people before Moses and said... Let us go at once and occupy it. For we will be able, for we are well able to overcome it. See, Caleb, this faithful Jewish man who is an example of the faith to us, knew that they could take it. Because if God is for them, who could possibly stand? He watched. He, knew, he remembered all of the miracles. He watched Pharaoh's army try to follow them across and get drowned. By the way, I've seen the photos of the bottom of the Red Sea where there's Pharaoh's chariots and all that stuff on it. I don't know if you've ever seen those, but they're there. Okay? I mean, we saw, this all happened. This is real history. The Jewish people did not make this up. They were telling the truth. Amen? Okay, so they crawl, and he remembers all this, and he's like, hey, if God did that, this is no problem, right? This is no problem. If God did all that, this is no problem. But the men who had gone up with him said, we're not able to go up against the people, for they're stronger than we are. So they brought the people of Israel a bad report of the land that they had spied out, saying, the land... The which we have gone to spy it out is a land that devours its inhabitants and all the people that we saw there are great height. And there we saw the Nephilim, the sons of Anak, who came from the Nephilim and were seen to ourselves like grasshoppers. And so we seemed to them. I don't think we're any different than Israel. There's some of us who have an intense faith in what we've seen God do and we know that when we come up against things, we're like Caleb. 
And we have this intense faith. And we know that God who has brought us thus far will continue to take us further. But there are those who at every passing turn cower and cringe and fear as if God's not big enough. As if God was caught off guard. As if God was surprised by our circumstances. I told my wife many years ago, I said, Honey, if, if I walked down, when we, this is when we lived in Clarksville, Tennessee, or when I was pastoring in Clarksville, Tennessee. I said, if I walked down to the Cumberland River, which the average depth in the middle of the Cumberland River is 35 feet deep. If I walked down to the Cumberland River, and, and God told me to do it, and I, and I could do it under His power, and had a staff, and reached out and touched the water, and it separated, and our church people were to go across, and then come back across, and then go across, and come back across, and people were playing out in the middle, and all this stuff, and we had it on film, we would be blown away for like two weeks. And then we would hit something, and we'd be like, it's too big for God. Because we would forget My wife's like, I don't know. But a few years later, my wife had seen, we'd seen some amazing things that God had done and people were forgetting. And my wife came and she said, you know, you're right. We would forget. We have forgotten. We've seen God do just as many miraculous, mighty things as that. And we forget. And we forget what He's done. And we cower and we cringe And we turn away from trusting Him. And we say, oh, God can't do this. See, in the first six chapters of the book of Hebrews, is all about not doing that. We're told not to forget that there is a very real danger if we forget There is a very real danger if we begin to have lived a life of trust in Him and then decide that we don't trust Him anymore. Now, I know there's people who cringe at this. I know there's people probably right now who are are cringing at at this message, but guys, it's the theme of the first six chapters of this book that's in the New Testament, which we claim to believe. And this warning is real. And I would be so remiss as a pastor if I did not warn us about forgetting God. The author of Hebrews warns us about forgetting God, forgetting what He did, and walking in unbelief. And I've got to recap all this before we move on. Because we can't forget Him. So where's the transition? The transition is in Hebrews chapter 6, starting in verse 4 and going through verse 8. And I know it's what I told you last week. I told you I'm preaching that passage again. I said last week while I was preaching, it's it's the text for next week as well. So I want you to turn there and let's read over this again. We're going to look at it from a a little different perspective. Not totally. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away, 
to restore them again to repentance since they're crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding them up to condent. For the land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed and its end is to be burned. And we, we talked about it last week. The word impossible means impossible. And we walked away from that message saying that we live in the faith, and I chose the word can very specifically because a couple of people asked me about that, so I'm just, maybe everybody's wondering why I chose can. We live in the faith that God can keep us, but we live like he can't. And I do, I chose can for can and can't, you know. We trust that God can keep us safe in his hands. That it's not by our actions that we stay in the faith. That it's not by our actions after we get saved that we end up in heaven. But we live like we can't. We live like it matters to God. We live like we don't forget what he took us out of. Because he warns us that it's impossible to return us to faith if we do that. Now, that can mean a lot of different things. And, you know, the bottom line is, inside of the Christian and Missionary Alliance, which we are a part of, we don't have an official stance on that. We talked about it at my small group on Wednesday. Do you believe in the eternal security of the believer? Or do you believe that you can lose it? And everybody was different. And that's okay. We're all in different places with the Lord. It is not a division issue inside the church. Okay? Because if you're on the eternal security side, then the warning... For you, says, hey, make sure that you actually got saved. Because if you're living like hell, then you need to doubt whether or not you really put your trust in him to begin with. Is there an eternal security person here who's, who agrees with what I'm saying with the eternal security side? All right, there you go. So Mark agrees with that. The warning for somebody who believes you're eternally secure. My wife is an eternal security person too, so it's all good. So, <laughs> but... <laughs> <laughs> but but for but am I but am I accurately portraying the eternal security side that you say if somebody's living this way maybe they didn't actually get saved right so that's how the that's how the eternal security person deals with it the person who believes that you can reject Jesus and walk away says that you can lose it but both of both sides of the issue take the warning serious amen the warning is serious We need to either doubt whether or not we really got saved to begin with, or we need to say, whoa, I rejected God and walked away. And it's okay to be on either side of the issue and be a part of this church. Because we don't think we have to have this one right to get in. If we get to heaven and you're wrong about this one, the only thing you have to have right to get in is personal faith and repentance in Jesus Christ. Personal relationship with Jesus. We want to grow in all the rest of the doctrine, but we're wrong about some stuff. I'm wrong about some stuff, guarantee you. There's an infinitely perfect God, and my little finite mind does not fully understand Him. I guarantee you I'm wrong about something. But we need to take this warning serious, whichever side you're on. I'm not trying to get you to switch sides. I just want you to take the warning serious. Can I get a witness? Amen? Okay. By the way, I personally lean much closer to eternal security than the other way. If you want to know my personal viewpoint. I believe that I'm not going to accidentally sin and lose my salvation. However, I think that a person could willfully choose to give it up. I don't know why they would. 
but I think you could because God talks about doing that. I don't know why they would, but you know. But I think if I'm driving down the road and I get in a head-on collision and blaspheme right before I die, I'm going right from there right into heaven. Okay? But that's my personal viewpoint. So, we're talking about this, this major transition in the book. We've read all of that. This warning is real. Now let's pray and go through this warning in a little bit different way than we did last week. Father God, we come before you today. We trust you that this warning is there for a reason. Lord, for those of us who believe in the eternal security of the believer, Lord, we believe it's there to warn us that we better make sure we're really believers. And Lord, for those of us who are on the other side of the issue, who believe that it's something that we can give up, Lord, we we believe that warning's there for us as well. Either way, we need to make sure we're in the faith. As it says in one of the Corinthian epistles in chapter 13, verse 5, it says, examine yourselves to see if you're in the faith. Test yourselves. Lord, we're doing that today. We don't want to forget about you. And so we ask it all in Jesus' name. And God's people said, Amen. So there's four key elements in this passage of Scripture, in, in, in chapter 6, verses 4 through 8, where the transition's beginning to take place. Like this is the one side of the transition. Next week's message is going to be on the other side of the transition. And there's four key passages, or four key elements there in verses 4 to 5. So let's read those verses again. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, and tasted uh, the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come. So what's the first key element? For those who have been enlightened. For those who have been enlightened. Now, keeping in mind that the author of Hebrews is talking about using the example of Israel in in Numbers chapter 13 through 15, all throughout it. That's where he, by the way, when you go back and read it, for I swore in my wrath they wouldn't enter my rest. That's the place he did it. Numbers chapter 13 to 15 is where God said that. Okay? He's using the example. These are people who've been enlightened. These are not people who are ignorant about seeing God work. These are people who have seen God work. Who know that God is exactly who He says He is. That I am is exactly who He says He is. They've been enlightened. Their eyes are open. They have seen the truth. They know this. And he's talking about people who've been enlightened. The second thing, those who have tasted the heavenly gift. Now, for me, as as we consider this passage of Scripture, what is the heavenly gift? The gift of heaven. The bread that came down from heaven, according to Jesus, is Him. Remember it says in one place, taste and see that the Lord is good. This is tasting of the relationship that we have with our Father through the Lord Jesus Christ. This is people who've tasted what has come down, who've been enlightened, who've seen, who know and have witnessed the power of God, who've seen all of these things. 
who've seen the miracles, who've experienced the peace that Jesus can give. The next one is those who've tasted the goodness of the Word of God. Excuse me, who've tasted the heavenly gift and shared in the Holy Spirit. I mean, that's part about the sharing in the Holy Spirit. Tasted the goodness of the Word and shared in the Holy Spirit. These are people who God has touched them. I'm sorry, I neglected to mention that part of the verse. The second one, who've tasted the goodness of the Word of God. I want to explain what it means to you when we've tasted the goodness of the Word of God. The Scriptures are burdensome to people who do not know Jesus. The Scriptures are burdensome to those who do not know Jesus. By the way, friends, that is Jesus' interpretation of it. Because the rabbis were teaching the Scriptures and they were burdensome to the people. And He said, you tie up all these heavy burdens on them that you yourself won't use a finger to lift. But take upon me my yoke. Because my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Or take upon you my yoke. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Now you've got to understand something. You've got to take upon him his yoke. There are things that we have to do. But for those of us who've done that, the scriptures are no longer burdensome. I'm no longer burdened as I look at the Old Testament law. I'm not burdened by it. Now, when I say I'm not burdened by it, I don't mean it like some people mean it, like it doesn't matter anymore. It matters. It matters. Jesus did not abolish the law. Grace doesn't require less than the law. It requires more than the law. Jesus said, you have heard it was written in days of old, you should not commit adultery. But I tell you, if you look with lust, you're guilty of adultery already in your heart. Grace requires more, not less. The difference is, is when I have tasted the goodness of the Word of God, I've experienced that peace of Jesus, and I realize that the Word is no longer a means to Jesus, which it never was. It was never intended to save us. But I realize that it's... It's there to drive me to Christ, as the New Testament says. The law, the Torah, serves as a schoolmaster to drive us to the Messiah. We were never meant to be righteous by this. It wasn't through keeping the law that any of the people, when we get to Hebrews 11, were saved. It was by faith. I mean, remember the Faith Hall of Fame? It was by faith that Abraham did this. It was by faith that... You know, uh, Noah did this, and by faith Moses did this, and by faith Jephthah did this, and by faith, and by faith, and by faith, and by faith, and by faith. It's never been about keeping the law, ever. It was not about them keeping the law that brought them out of Egypt. It was about the Passover lamb, a foreshadowing of the Messiah. Nothing they did but saying, I will trust in the blood of a lamb. And it worked for those who put their trust in it. But let me tell you about the goodness of the Word of God. How many times have you met with somebody 
who, who hasn't experienced the peace of God, who hasn't tasted the heavenly gift, shared in the sealing of the Holy Spirit, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And the indwelling of the Holy Spirit and the fullness of the Holy Spirit, different things. But that's not the sermon today. But they have had, they've come alive to Jesus Christ. And, but you, you've got people who haven't experienced that. And they read the scriptures and they say, I, I don't get it. None of it makes sense. And then you meet somebody who is born again and you start to explain to them and they do get it. Jesus answers the question on this, what this is about experiencing the goodness of the word. The word going from this enigma, this puzzle, this confusing thing to all of a sudden coming alive. He says, the word of God is spiritual and thus spiritually discerned and the natural man can neither receive nor understand it for he is natural. Jesus taught in parables. Because people could not get it. Because if you're spiritually dead, you cannot get something that is spiritually discerned. So he taught in natural ways to explain spiritual truths. So we're talking about people who have come alive to this. And all of a sudden the scriptures are making sense to them. Being told, don't forget. They're being told, don't forget. When I went from being lost to born again, I could say what the psalmist who wrote Psalm 119, the longest chapter in the Bible. And by the way, little Jewish boys would memorize it word for word. The whole thing. All right. So when, I'm, when I read this, I can say that I delight myself in his law just like... The psalmist, I mean, 119 is about the law. Psalm 119 is about the law, and it talks about how wonderful God's law is. And when you don't know him, God's law is a burden. But when you come to know him in a very real way, all of a sudden it's no longer a burden. All of a sudden you can say with the psalmist that I delight myself in God's law. It's wonderful to me. I go and I look at those confusing laws in the Old Testament that say I need to build a parapet around the roof of my house and that was confusing and burdensome to me because why would I build a parapet on my steeped roof? That doesn't make any sense to me. And then as a born-again believer, I understand, wait a minute, Jesus said that the entire law and the prophet hangs on love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself. Oh, if I love my neighbor as myself and they were Jewish people living on the... They would live in their house with a flat roof and they would also use the roof of it for things... And they would put a parapet around it so their neighbor wouldn't fall off when they came over. And they go, oh, I put a rail around my deck. It's not burdensome. I don't feel like, can't believe I got to put a rail around my deck. I'm like, man, I love the people who are coming over here. I don't want them to stumble off and get hurt. Right? I don't think the hotel chain, you know, in the big city that has a 14-story building that has rails on their balconies is bad. I think they're trying to take care of people. Amen? They're building the parapet. I mean, not the exact same, but I go, oh, it's about loving people and taking care of them. This is no longer burdensome. This is about treating people with respect and dignity and honor and loving them and caring about them. But the part that gets me the most is those who have experienced a personal glimpse of the powers of the age to come. Verse 5, and have tasted the goodness of the word and the powers of the age to come. We live right now in two overlapping kingdoms. The kingdom of God has come, but it has not yet fully come. 
Here's how I know the kingdom of God has come. Jesus was kicking demons out of people. And they said, oh, it's by Beelzebub, the prince of demons. He kicks them out. And Jesus said, well, why do you say it's by Beelzebub? He said, if I cast out demons by the prince of demons, then the house is divided and it's going to fall. But if I cast out demons by the power of God, then the kingdom of God has come among you. But we know when the kingdom fully comes, there's no more suffering, there's no more sorrow, there's no more sickness, there's no more death. So the kingdom has come, but it's not yet fully come. So we're seeing these things happen. We're seeing these amazing miracles happen. We're seeing people healed and delivered and set free. Let me give you some examples of what this is talking about. This is talking about the people whose marriage was breaking apart and there's no way that's going to hold together. And they tried everything. And then God, in an act of His sovereignty and grace, steps in and intervenes. And let me just tell you something real quick. Every marriage is not made in heaven. I know people try to say that it is, that it's God-ordained. No, the institution of marriage was made in heaven. But sometimes people get in marriages on their own and need God to get intervening. Amen? All right? Now, either A, you were there at one point in your marriage, or B, you know somebody who was. Right? And we see God intervene in a miraculous way. And turn a marriage around. And it's a miracle. And it doesn't make any sense. I mean, these are people who were getting ready to kill each other. And now all of a sudden, they've got this whole new outlook on life. And you're like, wow, God got involved in that. Or renewed hope. Somebody who is hopeless. And the circumstances haven't changed. But all of a sudden... They have hope. And by the way, and I want to clarify this again. This is theologically important. This is a theologically important fact that I'm getting ready to share with you. Don't answer. It's a trick question. What is stronger? What is more powerful? Hope or faith? The answer is hope, not faith. Hope is is faith with expectation. The Greek word that we translate hope in the New Testament is faith with expectation. Hope is actually acting out our faith. Like I believe and I have faith and I and hope is like I trusted enough this blessed hope that we have that Jesus is coming back so I step out on it and I start acting on it. That's theologically correct. Everybody always talks about hope is less than faith. It's not. Hope is more than faith. Hope is faith as it's growing up. Amen? Okay. So renewed hope. What about miraculous healing? What about miraculous healing? I have laid hands on people and prayed for them, and they have recovered physically. There are others in our congregation who've done those same things. And look, I'm not trying to get the glory from God. It's, it was Him. Okay, but, but miraculous healings. And by the way, we believe inside the Alliance, that's still available today. And I showed you the other week that I don't think there's any Christian out there that doesn't believe that it's available. Because we pray when people get sick. And if it's not available and Jesus doesn't do that anymore, why the heck are we praying? Right? But every time grandma gets sick or somebody gets sick, we say, let's pray for them. Well, if Jesus doesn't heal, why? 
So I think in our heart of heart, every Christian, regardless of what your, regardless of what your theological official position is, you believe in your heart of hearts Jesus heals. Because you pray when people are sick. But we've seen people recover. We've seen people recover from um, just debilitating illnesses. I saw a guy one time who could hardly walk, who had all these screws and everything in his ankle and, and, and it was all messed up. And I watched him. When we got done praying, he's standing up in front of the... He wasn't trying to get anybody's attention. He's standing up and he's going. And he walked away. He's like, what the heck? And he was good. And I don't think he came up for prayer for that. Our former vice president, John Soper, went in and there was a, a Jewish lady who was... Her, her friend was coming to the church that John pastored and her friend said, you know, would you come up and pray with her and talk with her? She's got hepatitis. Whichever one of the hepatitis isn't curable or hardly manageable. Would you come up and pray with her? And, you know, she's, she is not messianic at this point, but, but she's open to hearing. So John goes in there. It's John Soper's testimony. Goes in. He meets with the lady. They're talking. She says, he explains the whole thing to her. She says, yeah. She goes, I, I just don't believe that. It's cool that you do. Thank you for coming and sharing. I just wanted to hear it one more time. And, and he said, is there anything that God could do that would help you? She said, well, if God showed me himself, yeah. So John just prayed for her. Lord, Jesus, if you're, who, if you're who you say you are, just show her in your own way. He walked out. Now, she was orange from the jaundice because her liver was failing. She was in the hospital pretty much to die. He gets home two hours later. His friend is calling him freaking out. John's like, what? Dude, what'd you do? Nothing. I just prayed Jesus would reveal himself. She's not orange anymore. Her liver activity, they think, is back to where it's supposed to be. They kept her in the hospital for several more days. The doctors wouldn't let her go home. Because they kept running tests. No sign of the disease anywhere in her body. I mean, we see God do this stuff. We see God heal emotionally. I'm going to share something without the permission of my wife. Hopefully she doesn't stone me. But when my wife, my wife was born with a fibroid tumor on the ball of her foot, and she had it amputated when she was nine months old. When she was an adult, I'm not going to tell you how old, middle-aged. <laughs> she would say she's not even middle-aged yet. But, but the year that it happened is totally irrelevant. She had a revision done to her amputation and she had her leg removed seven inches below her knee. I watched my wife lay on our couch and I would have to manipulate to break the adhesions loose her leg. And I watched her look at me, a woman of faith, and tell me, just leave me alone. I'm not ever going to walk again. Now, God didn't grow her leg back and I think he can if he wants to. And I don't know, maybe one of these days he's going to blow us all away and do it. But I watched him heal her spirit. A woman who said, leave me alone. I'm never going to walk again. I'll just ride in a wheelchair everywhere I go. And I watched God do a miracle inside of her. She was done. But as people prayed for her, we watched her transform. So much so 
that we were complaining about this prosthesis that had been made for her. We're starting to have serious issues with it. And the prostitution is mad. And he is like, you guys, she was walking eight weeks after she had her, her leg amputated. That ain't normal. We said, you guys said it was an eight-week recovery process. Yeah, from like the surgery and like getting all the stitches and all that stuff out. And then we start working on trying to get her walking again. And she's walking. This was, and this was a girl who was going to give up and ride in a wheelchair for the rest of her life. Okay? This is a miracle. I've watched God deliver people from depressions. I've watched people who were suicidal go from being that to being completely transformed and never going back into that. I've seen physical healings. I've seen all these miracles, all this stuff. I've seen God show up in financial ways. Listen to me. Hear me. Tithing is biblical. We're going to get to the offering. I'm going to tell you if you're not, if you're not part of our church, keep your money. Okay? But we believe in tithing, a full 10% of our gross income. It's biblical, it's taught in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. It's actually taught in Hebrews chapter 7 that Jesus receives our tithes in heaven. It says, the one of whom it is testified he lives receives our tithes in heaven. Hmm. Who is it testified that he lives? Come on, who is it testified that he lives? Jesus. We believe in, we believe in tithing, okay? So <clears throat> this is not to try to talk you into tithing. If God hasn't convinced you, don't do it. But tithing says, God, I trust you. I got this big stack of bills. I trust you. By the way, Old Testament tells us tithe belongs to God. To God. It's not yours. So if you take it, you've actually stolen it. That's what it says. Malachi chapter 3 says you robbed God. I know, I know. Why am I saying all this? I'm not trying to teach on tithing. I'm going to say again, if you aren't a tither, that's okay. Keep coming. And don't do it until God speaks it to you. Okay, amen? All right, so having said that, I've watched people walk up to our door, knock on our door. My wife goes to the door, answers the door. The person says, hey, God told me to give this to you. Sarah's like, okay. Takes the envelope from him. And the person says, by the way, it's for you, not for your church. Okay. Shuts the door. What they didn't know was we had just been sitting in the house talking. We didn't know where we were going to come up with $400. Sarah comes back in and goes, Hey, so-and-so just showed up at the house and said God told them to give this to us. So what is it? She opens the envelope, four $100 bills. The exact amount that we didn't know how we were going to come up with. Like miraculous financial provision. That's not to try to talk you into tithing. That's my that's just one of my... I've got a bunch of stories like that. Okay, clearly, I have not missed any meals. Okay? So, you know, God shows up in these miraculous ways all the time. So, where does this all go? Right? Here's where it really goes. And, and it says in my notes, really pound on this. Ooh, that is not what I meant to have happen. So... Hit the back arrow twice on the keyboard. Nope, it's not going to work. It's okay. I didn't mean for that to happen. So just don't read all of those points, okay? Okay. It says really pound on the fact that we have a foretaste of the fully realized kingdom of God, right? 
when we see God work, when we see all these miracles happen, we really have a foretaste of the fully realized kingdom of God. We have tasted these things. We have seen these miraculous workings. Guys, when you see somebody who is, who is estranged from God, who is angry at God, who is rebellious towards God, turn and become a worship coordinator inside of a church and be willing to put himself out there like Jeff did. You go, wow, that's a miracle. God's done something. That's pretty awesome. And I'm not trying to pick on Jeff. I'm trying to say, what a great testimony. Here's somebody who's doing all this. When you see a guy like me who was walking in just total, complete rebellion, you never have to wonder who the most important person in my life is. It is not my wife. And it is not my children. Nor should it be. It is Jesus. And when I put him first, everything else works out a lot better with them. Just ask them. They'll tell you. You don't have to worry about whether or not I bow my knee to him. I will give everything for him. But I was the guy beforehand, if you remember the Easter testimony, who wouldn't, you wouldn't have spit on me to put me out if I was on fire before Jesus came. I was that big of a jerk. Right? I've tasted and I've seen. You've tasted and you've seen. You've had miraculous financial provision. You've had miraculous healings. You've seen hearts restored. You've seen relationships restored. You've seen all of these things. We have tasted and we have seen. Like Israel, we've seen the miraculous hand of God at work among us. Ignore the bottom two points. Like Israel, we've seen the miraculous hand of God among us. But I think at the second point there, Israel chose to ignore or forget God's past blessings and thus they were prevented from experiencing future blessings. They forgot who he was. They forgot what he did. These were people who had experienced it, guys. This warning is real. This warning is for Christians. They forgot, and, they, and God said, that's it. You're not entering into my rest. I'm not going to let you come in. Then the third point, we must continue to trust in God's continued work in our life and church, or we risk coming out from underneath of His blessing. And I know that some of you are like, oh, I can't come out from underneath His blessing. Let me ask you a question. Can you be blessed in a special way? If you believe you can, raise your hand. Okay, what happens when you're not being blessed in that special way? Isn't that coming out from underneath of that blessing? I mean, I've had people tell me that Malachi chapter 3 doesn't work for them because I'm a New Testament Christian. And I'm not talking about tithing, but he says in there, you're cursed with a curse. They go, I can't be cursed. I'm a New Testament Christian. It's impossible for me to be cursed. I say, can you be blessed? Well, yes. Can you be living in a period in life where you're not being blessed? Yes. What do you call that? Unblessed? Right? You're either, you know, well, I'm just not being blessed. Yeah, well, what's that called? Right? Cursed. Right? I mean, it tells us in the New Testament, God 
disciplines those he loves. I know we, we don't like that as grace-filled Christians, right? But it's by God's grace that he disciplines us. See, we get all squirrely because it's like, oh, well, God, you're saying that God's a meanie. No, I'm saying that God has your best interest in mind even when you don't. And he's willing to do what it takes to get your attention so that you get the eternal blessings. That you receive everything that he wants you to have. I know that's hard. I know some of us are struggling with that concept and we're saying, oh, I don't know, preacher. Listen to me. Do you hate your kids when you punish them? How many of you moms here on Mother's Day hate your kids when you punish them? I don't see any hands. How many of you dads are despising your children when you're correcting them? You're doing it for their good, amen? You're doing it because you love them, amen? When they don't obey, when they forget all that they're supposed to be, because sometimes our kids forget their home training, amen? Right? We step in. And we and, and it tells us, and by the way, the Scriptures tell us this is an example of our Father in Heaven towards us. But I, I just want to hit on this. And, and I'm getting ready to kind of wrap it up here. I want to point out verse 9. Though it's not a part of our Scripture today. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. Church, I told you when I started preaching through the tough part of this book that I didn't believe this was like we were all a bunch of rebels. But when you're preaching verse by verse through a book, you have to go over all of it. I'm not asking you to operate out of a a basis of a fear of punishment. But the scriptures tell us that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It's what it says. And I'm asking you to operate out of this place where you say, okay, these warnings are real. He's warned us about this for a real reason. I believe, though, like the author of Hebrews is saying, in your case, I feel sure of better things. I don't look out and see a bunch of people who I think want to rebel against God. I see a bunch of people who, like me, God decided we needed to be reminded to not forget about Him. Quite frankly, I'd like to be reminded to not forget about Him before I forget about Him. Amen? Like, it's a lot easier when we haven't forgotten to be reminded not to forget, right? Let me give it to you another way. There's been a number of years where I have forgotten my wife's birthday. But I have now set up tons of safety nets to never let that happen again. Email reminders, friends. And by the way, if you're my friend and you don't call me about her birthday, you're not my friend. (laughs) Anyway, but, you know, friends that are calling me, all of this kind of stuff, right? Because when I forget and she has to remind me, it is way worse than when I get reminded beforehand so I don't forget. Amen? Okay, so this isn't a beat down. I'm not saying OCCA has forgotten God. I'm saying let's make sure we don't forget God. Because it's happening all over our country. It's happening all over our country. People are forgetting God. Denominations, church groups, 
all kinds of people who used to be so totally sold out to Jesus. We watch it, we hear the news stories, we do all these things where they have just, they're just walking away from it. Something's wrong. And we say, well, but for the grace of God, there go I, right? So we make sure to remind one another, to stir one another up, like it says, to stir one another up. Some of you are stirred up today and ready to choke me because I preach this message. I am stirring you up to righteousness and good deeds, as it says. We have another place inside this book where we have to have a crazy message like this again. Hebrews 10.26, it says, If we go on deliberately sitting after receiving knowledge of the sin, there no longer remains a sacrifice of sin, but instead a fearful expectation of judgment and the fury of fire to come. And I'm like, oh, golly. Thank goodness it's in chapter 10. I get some time to, you know, not preach about that craziness right now. But I think God's going to remind us again. We cannot forget God. Can I get an amen? We cannot forget what He's done. We have to remember. We have to remember. We want to be like Caleb. Like Joshua. Like the ones who didn't forget. A wise person learns from somebody else's mistakes. Let's learn from the mistakes that others have made. And let's not forget our God. Amen? Now... Homework for this week is a little different. I could summarize it this way. I gave you verse numbers. Monday, Hebrews chapter 1. Tuesday, Hebrews chapter 2. Wednesday, Hebrews chapter 3. Picking up a pattern. Monday through Saturday, read one chapter of the first six chapters of Hebrews. Now, here's what I want to point out to you. You could actually read all six chapters probably in about ten minutes. I don't want you to read this slow. I want you to read it at a quicker pace. Don't stop when you're reading it. Go through it at a quicker pace and look for the theme. Like, don't get caught up staring at the individual tree. Look at the forest to see if what I'm saying is right. The theme of the first six chapters is don't forget about what God has done. That's the first six chapters theme. So that we can move on into some of these other things. Man, I'm telling you, when we get into chapter 7, it's going to get really cool. We're going to start talking about Melchizedek and all this really neat stuff. But we need to not forget about God in the process. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we trust you. We trust you. Yes, Lord, we trust you. And we declare that to you. We don't want to forget about you. Father, like the author of Hebrews says, I believe that the men and women here haven't forgot about you yet. That they love you, they're passionate about you, and they want to serve you. Lord, I thank you that we've gotten through this rather sticky part of the book. And Lord, we ask that you'll continue to guide us by your grace and your truth. And Lord, it's in Jesus' name we pray. And God's people said, Amen. Amen.